There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, Carmen, tell me your last name again. Van Bianchi. Van Bianchi. What'd you think about squid jigging? It was great. I hadn't done that in... Years we grew up doing that in the Puget Sound. It was a it was a birthday party thing in my family. We had a fall birthday. Where'd you go any time of year? Uh, no, actually December eighth was my sister's birthday. And, and you guys we, a jig squid. Yeah, we sometimes would take a group of girls down on the dock and. Now, would you guys clean house? Like, were you guys better at it than 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 uh than me and Yanni are at it? Not much better. I mean, we didn't have our own lights, so we'd just go onto the ferry dock and just fish wherever the pools of light from the um, fairy lights were. And so, I don't know, that doesn't seem to bring as many in. We do better some nights, worse some other nights. Yeah, I'm addicted to it. So it's now, uh, it's squid season in, in, in the Pacific Northwest. They come in shallow to spawn. They congregate November and December. I, I read that they spawn between like uh, 5 and 30 feet of water. Um, and then people show up down on the piers. Like it seems that the squid are kind of drawn to light. I don't know if they're yeah. prey. I don't know if they're drawn to light because the stuff they're feeding on congregates around light. There's a lot of like things people don't, there's a lot of things that people have different opinions on about squid. Right. Now, why? Okay. First off, a squid jig just looks like a, it's like a little cylinder, like a glow-in-the-dark little cylinder, and there's no hook on it. There's just a bunch of wires. 
up-facing, upturned wires that impale the squid. You're, you're snagging squid. Right, yeah. Now, why do you feel, and I'm not, you're not a squid expert, <laughs> what's your theory about why, what is that squid's interaction with the squid jig? So my squid knowledge is based on a National Geographic that I owned when I was little and a, um, my first report I ever did in elementary school, which was on octopus and squid, and so my so you got started you got started in biology early oh yeah yeah very early um anyway my understanding is that in the absence of dock lights they're congregating in moonlight and they're congregating to mate and so when they see that flashy squid jig they try to mate with it and that's when you get them that's what you think they're doing because i've that's had a my lot understanding. yeah i've had people tell me that well, I think it's like, I think it's like a feeding thing. Okay. I've heard both. I mean, I can see now, that No, I heard too. a guy saying it's, they're territorial and he's trying to fight the jig. Maybe so. I've had guys saying they're trying to mate the jig. Yeah. And I've had guys saying they're trying to feed on the jig. Because people catch a lot of squid all times a year using jigs. And outside of the spawning season. Right. So that would point to eating. Yeah. Like we caught a giant. Uh, my friend and colleague, Ben O'Brien, caught a giant, a different species. The ones we were get, getting last night are Loligo opalescens. Mm. Its common name is the market squid. He caught a big fatty. I don't know what it was. That some bitch hit a halibut jig. <laughs> now, I don't think he's trying to breed that halibut jig right, right. in June. Yeah. So Probably trying know. to eat it. Well, Everybody's got different opinions about it. Sounds like a place they for research. They do seem to like light. Yeah. I wrote a whole article about it. And I, I never, uh, I like, it was years ago in Outside Magazine, I wrote a piece about squid jigging in Puget Sound. And what's particularly interesting to me is that um, it doesn't look like your normal fishing, your normal American fisherman down there. Because the people that like to fish squid in Seattle are generally... Uh, the immigrant communities from Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. particularly fr from my own conversations with people, a lot of people from Vietnam, a lot of people from Laos, a lot of people from Cambodia, mm -hmm. Filipinos. And a lot of these guys that I had interviewed before had fish squid in their, in their home countries. Mm. Even some guys that had come in the 70s toward after, uh, after the fall of Saigon, some guys had come over and they had jigged squid same Vietnam. deal, have a light and... Yep, have a light, but also talk to guys that fish with poison and guys that fish with dynamite. Whoa. Yeah. That's one way to get some squid. This guy was telling me years ago, this is, this is I, I wrote this article, I remember it was right after the terrorist attacks because I, was, I lived in Montana and I had spent a lot of time around big buildings and it was right after the terrorist attacks and I remember it was December, the December after the terrorist attacks and I remember, you know, the, the, around Seattle there's so many planes Mm -hmm. crisscrossing and I couldn't watch a plane while in my field of view there was a large building without thinking that it was headed for the building right. and I remember being like so paranoid where I'd be like half watching my rod tip and half waiting for a plane to burrow into a skyscraper Yeah. so I always have it fixed in my head that it was December 2001 um, the hell was I getting at? I don't know about I don't know. Who's, who's squid jigging on the docks here in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, that was what it was. And, yeah, and very few. Now you see, you see, like some, you see like a handful of 
white people around. But it's generally people from, the, from Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to get at now. I, I interviewed a guy. By interview, I mean just like basically bullshitted with him on the pier while we were squid jigging. Um, he had fish squid in Vietnam. Came to the U.S. in 75. Had no idea and w- would walk along the piers being curious about the area with his flashlight. Mm-hmm. And one day shined a flashlight in the water, saw a squid, and started squid jigging. Now, he doesn't claim to be the guy that like fathered squid jigging, but he discovered it not through hearing about it and seeing people. He discovered it by walking down and seeing a squid. And that's when he started squid jigging in Puget Sound. Yeah, I don't know the history of it here, but um, ever since I was little, there's been people out there. And yeah, I don't. That's the thing is, I don't know. Like, if I was at my place in Southeast Alaska right now, would I go out on a float and knock the shit out of squid if I shined a light in the water, or is it like peculiar to the area? I don't know. Like, I don't know if people fish squid here because there's squid here, or people fish squid here because there's a population of people who are interested in fishing squid. Right, right. Because see people doing it, so they do it. Yeah. Like, I grew up in a place where people go way out of their way to catch yellow perch. Here is, is the best yellow perch fish in the world. No one fishes them. It's yeah. just local culture, maybe. Yeah. There's no panfish culture yeah. in the Pacific Northwest because everybody's got a salmon-centric view of the world. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about it, Giannis? I think more people would get after it. Because it seems oh, like once, so you, fun, once you figure it out. And kids love it. Yeah. Yeah, we had my two older youngsters out there, and they have a good time. I mean, they're not like necessarily fishing, but they're just taking it all in. You know? mm-hmm. that's, what kids, that's how kids fish at first. Yeah, totally. Fish Part of why I up. loved it when I was little was it was exciting to get to go out at night, and you're bundled up, and you have hot chocolate, and it's just a cool experience to be outside at night Yeah, in the winter. Like most cold weather outdoor activities, there's hot chocolate involved. So yeah. all the kids are in. Yeah. <laughs> and like every other worthwhile pursuit, there are some people who are really good at it and a lot of people that suck. Mm-hmm. I'm in the suck category. And like, what do we have? We had 15? We got 15, maybe. maybe. And we watched some boys next to us. They probably filled a bucket. Yeah, they caught. <laughs> 15 to fishing every one the, of ours. Yeah, fishing yeah. the exact same shit we Feet were fishing. Away Except, from us. They had a bright-ass light. Yeah, I think as a little experiment, you should get a but bright Greg light. Was, Greg was dipping over into their light, and he wasn't pulling squid out like that. Yeah, but he was kind of on the edge of it. I mean... They definitely had some uh, differences in tackle. Longer rods. That's that true. Doesn't, that doesn't account for everything. It doesn't account for everything. Yeah, but little, uh, every little thing matters. Yes. And the longer rod does a few things. One, you've got more play in the rod. It's a softer rod tip, you know? So who knows? So maybe when you're jerking it with a stiffer rod, maybe they get out of the way, you know, because they're feeling it more. And that yep. softer pull of this longer, softer rod impales them in a different way that, you know, they can't get off. Whatever. Oh, if you think They were running minute. double jigs, too. Yeah, I do that, too. And the reason I got away from it is... Having inexperienced anglers, mm-hmm. like when I have my kids or whatever, they lose so many jigs. Right. So then they're losing two at a time. And then if I put two on, then they're like, why don't I get two? Right. And then you got to be like, well, because you'll lose them. And then it's like, you're an asshole. Like, you're like, you know what I mean? So that's why if I was, if it's just like you and me were out, we would have been running two. But, you know. 
just hard to keep. Yeah, I think it's hard to, to keep stocked up on jigs. Mimic their setup as much as possible, and then if still nothing's changing, we're just going to go over and learn Cambodian or yeah. No, last time, I, last time I was out, I was running two and had a nice double. I saw a guy get a triple, two on one and one on one. A triple on a double. He had a double rig, triple squid. You know, I know that had, half of the ones I caught were impaled like in the side. Yeah, like, but yeah. I, that's that's just something that happens. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like happenstance they were swimming by i impaled them with my jig yeah. motion most of the ones i saw coming in with the guys next to us looked like the squid was hooked like between they, the, ten- going between the tentacles yeah, yeah. no there's a, there's a lot of mystery to it now one time i was out there my buddy drove in 2001 and we went down and we had just a regular 60 watt light bulb we had a battery and an inverter and a 60-watt light bulb, one of those aluminum shrouds you put around a 60-watt light bulb. And we went down there right at dusk and knocked the shit out of them. Like, we had over half a bucket. So there is stuff like, there's a voraciousness I think they get. They get fired up, you know, and hit better. Like, maybe sometimes it's so good, any idiot, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's so good, any idiot is going to do good. Last night, it was like the, the men were separated from the boys. Oh, yeah. The women from the girls <laughs> last night by those two dudes next to us. Because there was probably 25 people on that pier, and two guys were knocking the shit out of the squid. And it was killing me. Big ones. Big ones, too. Yeah. I don't think we caught a single squid as, <laughs> as big as the ones they were pulling. Yeah, and it hooked them all in the face, man. It's hard to say face because their eyes are at one end and their mouth is at the other they end. They hooked them at the mouth. Right. No. Mouth is at the same end. Mouth's at the same, same end. It's weird, though, because their feet are at that same end. Mm. Yeah, they're a decapod. They have 10. Well, they have like eight, two arms and eight legs, but a total of 10. Two of those things are longer than the others. Yeah. And have different cup, like a different suction cup array on them. And they got a beak like a bird. Yeah. Like a hard, black, hooked beak like a bird. I got bit by that one Ben mm-hmm. O'Brien caught yeah. that hurt. Yeah. Um, now, Carmen, tell, tell me, what's your job description? Well. Like, how do you describe? I guess I describe myself as a wildlife biologist. I went to school for, and I got a um, wildlife management and conservation degree for my where? undergrad, Humboldt State University. In California. Mm-hmm. Northern California. Big dope smoking area. Big, yeah. yeah my buddy's <laughs> from there. Especially in Humboldt County. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. My buddy always points, like I got a buddy from Humboldt County, and um, and, and uh, when he says Humboldt County, certain segment of the American population, their ears perk up when they yeah. hear it. It's probably less so now, but back in the day, that was the yeah. thing, you know. Yeah, Like his father ran a hydroponic supply store. There you go. <laughs> probably did well. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the first thing that people think of, but it's also a beautiful place that's uh, great to learn about wildlife because we were just constantly out in the field learning all the waterfowl. It's a huge waterfowl migration area and birds everywhere. You've got the ocean, you've got redwoods, you've got the mountains. So it's a really good place to go to school for that. But you, you weren't hunting back then, right? Like no, you grew up around I was, fishing, but you didn't hunt. Uh, you no, know, yeah, I didn't hunt. Um, when I was in college, there were a lot of hunters in the program, and I was starting to get really interested in it and knew that I wanted to do it. So then um, when I graduated from there, I uh, started actually taking action on it, and 
I went out and bought a gun, not really knowing what I was doing, and took hunter safety and um, just kind of started putting it together from there. But, but anyway, so yeah, I call myself a, a wildlife biologist, um, and I concentrate on carnivores. So most of the work I've done has been with carnivores. My master's work was on lynx. Um, in what area? In Washington. And um, so most of, the, most of my career has been just working seasonally all over the country, different projects, just... Yeah, but you'd say like, like you're like a like field biology though, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're out there catching and trapping and tracking... Yeah, yeah. So for example, carnivores. yeah, mostly. Um, I started out, actually my first job was uh, after my second year of school and it was in Hawaii working with hawksbill turtles. Oh, monitoring yeah? turtles, which um, was a pretty cush job. We camped on the beach, waited for turtles to come, and then basically put them in a full Nelson, which didn't work the first time I tried to do that. Turtle just kept on going like there was nothing on top of her. <laughs> oh, is that right? They could drag you along? <laughs> yeah, I didn't quite have the body type for that. But Hold on, hold on. So I, I, I obviously don't know about this turtle that you're, you're speaking of. What kind of a turtle is it's it? It's a big, How big sea is turtle. It? Big sea turtle. Bigger than the green one you always see in Hawaii. They're, well, I think, yeah, yeah. Maybe probably, I think there's some overlap in size. but um, How much so, do they weigh? I don't know what an average one is. But that's like a wheelbarrow. Big. It was huge. Very, very strong. And so this turtle comes up on the beach. We've been told you restrain it by jumping on it, putting it in a full Nelson, and then the rest of the crew will tag it while you've got it So you hook your arms under his front feet. So yeah, you you get, under his paddles. Yep, you're on the turtle's shell. Your your front arms are under the front flippers, sort of lifting them up so they can't get any mm. purchase. And gotcha. then you know your hands are locked over its neck. So I did that. So he can't come around and grab you. Yeah, she. These are nesting she. nesting turtles, and just to keep it in one place so that you can put tag on on its flippers. That's where they tag them. Uh huh. Why not tag? Why little, not tag the shell? Uh, because it's easy to just punch through the. The skin on the flippers. Oh, so when I've caught like when I've caught tagged soft shells here, they they clamp it right to the back of the shell. Hmm. Seems like a perfect place to put it. You put it in its flipper. Yeah, it was just a little metal tag with a number on it. Oh, yeah. not like a tracking device. Right, right, right. I see. Yeah. Um. And they anyway, will they will this, try to get you when you're trying to restrain it. Uh probably. I mean, yeah, you don't want to put your hands in front of their face. And then their flippers are just flying, and it can be kind of a rodeo, especially when I did it because it, I just didn't have the weight to hold it down, so it just kept going. So yeah, we, had, I got you. we swapped out. We got it figured out. Anyway, that was my first job, and that was also my first dally into trapping because we would trap mongoose around the beach to try and keep those populations down there invasive there, and they just tear All up. Or try them. to control mongoose from getting the eggs? Yeah, yeah. How would you catch those? Uh, have a heart's. Catch them in have hearts, um, and then we just euthanize them with uh, CO2 gas. Really? Yeah. How's that work? You just pick up the trap, and you put it in a plastic bag, and you have a tank, and you... Shoot a shot in there? What's that? Just shoot a squirt yeah, of yeah. CO2 in there? Yeah. Because you get the same effect by just closing off the bag. It just takes forever. Right. That might be a slow and yeah. painful sort of deal. So this was fast, and you could check your little trap line, and feral cats and rats, too. Yeah, when I've been in Hawaii, you do see a lot of those freaking mongooses around there. Yeah, man, it's a problem. Invasives. You know, the turtles there, 
what's the other? So there's the hawks, but there's the other kind, like a green green turtle. Yeah. 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 Now, last year we were on a family vacation, and I was spear fishing there, and I'd go out at night, and you dive down under the coral ledges. And you bump in face face those turtles. Mm-hmm. It's like everything underwater is scary. Everything underwater at night is oh, even yeah. scarier. And it's like Ooh. on the beach, a turtle is tur- like, oh, it's a big ass turtle. Underwater, it always be like kind of intimidating to roll up on those things. And then one time I went down and, and there was a, a turtle laying there under underwater under a coral head. And there was a kala, you know, like a unicorn fish, feeding on the turtle's head. And it was a big collar. And I didn't want to obviously hit the turtle. And so I corrected so much to try to get the collar but not get the turtle. I wound up missing the fish off the backside of the fish. Cause I was, even though I was like point blank range, I was just paranoid about messing with that turtle, which is like an image stuck in my mind. It was giants because they don't like attack people, but anything like that just seems kind of intimidating underwater, man. You're so out of your element in the yeah. water, too. I find I, you know, I, I run around in the woods all the time and I work with predators and I I don't worry about bears, I don't think about cougars. I'm not I'm totally comfortable, but in the water, I just I did some snorkeling when I did that job and I would just be I couldn't stop thinking about sharks. I just yeah. felt so out of my element and it's just not, you know, just not what you're used to. You know, I guess it's what you're used to that you're comfortable with, but Yeah, cuz I used to I used to have some of that fear of like I used to have more of a fear of grizzlies. But it just gets used up somehow or goes away, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you just get comfortable and your your perception of what the risk is changes. Yeah. You start to realize that it's usually overblown. So what what was the next animal you worked on after after the turtle work? Or what were they trying to find out about the turtles? Just mark and recapture? like. Yeah, it was a monitoring project. And then we'd mark the nests. It was also an effort to protect the nests. Um and then in the fall when they hatch in late summer, I w- actually wasn't there for that part. When the nestlings hatch, they're trying to be there to get as many as possible to the ocean just to get them over that first hurdle of yeah. making it alive. So it's like mechanically assisting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keeping yeah. predators away, helping them get back right, in the water. Right, right, yeah. Cause Cause that's, the their vul- that's their vulnerability, right? The that's, beach. Yeah, well, and then also in the water. Not many of them make it anyway, but I think the idea is to just give them a little better of a chance to make it because they're, they're struggling, a struggling species. Yeah. How many times might, do you know how many times one of those females might breed? I don't know. I, that was my one and only dally into reptiles. Yeah. That's the weird thing about what, with animal populations like that or like fish. You know, they're laying thousands of eggs. Well, in the case of turtles, they're laying a dozen or more eggs. They're going to live for decades. Mm-hmm. Presumably lay eggs Dozens of times. Yeah. And then it's and like... If they, can, if they can have two of those eggs, they're successful if two of those eggs turn into turtles. Oh, yeah. If that. Yeah. Like you're successful. Yeah. Over the lifetime. Yeah. Not per... Uh, um, yeah. So like a, a salmon comes up and drops how many hundreds of eggs. Yeah. It's successful if two or roughly one or two live. Yeah. Yeah. It's common strategy. In nature. I mean, it, you even see it in just our, our prey populations, you know. The deer are having way more babies than the land can support, so. Yeah, just hope that one some of them sticks. Yeah, yeah. We had a uh, guy we interviewed on here one time that had a, he had a black bear sow. Mm-hmm. 
that he watched um, during his research project that he watched um, rear 10 cubs 200 pound size. Back to back, back, quin is it quintuplet? Five? Mm -hmm. Back to back quintuplets. That's impressive. That she got all 10 to 100 pounds at least. And at that point, they're. They're rocking yeah. at 100 pounds. She had a good territory. So she was successful. Yeah, yeah, well, we got into that. She was on to a lot of cropland and was on to the place where they dumped roadkill deer. Ah, that's right. I heard this uh, yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the bear's, that's handy. Yeah, the bear's name is the uh, Wisconsin Super Sow. So you did the turtle thing. Then yep. what happened? So um, let's see. I did a couple bird projects, one in the Smokies. That was fun, doing some mist netting and looking for nests. What kind of birds? Um, we were looking for junco nests. They're just a common. Really? Why? Yeah, Yeah, little sparrow. I got those in my yard right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason we were looking for those is we were collecting eggs, so it needed to be a common bird. And I was working for a PhD student who was looking at um, environmental leaching. So from all the pollution. Oh, gotcha. Um, wondering, is calcium leaching out of the environment enough that it's affecting eggshells? Why is, there, why is there calcium in the environment? Just natural calcium in natural the environment. Calcium. That's the good part. That's the part the birds need yeah, to get yeah. from eating snails and whatever, um, and then need it for making shells. So being leached out by pollution, by pollution could be oh, a problem. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. Because when, you know when they used to use DDT? Right. It would cause the birds' shells to be too soft yeah. so that when the bird was incubating, do you know what it was? Was that a calcium issue? I don't know. I don't know what the Why it caused their shells to get thin? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But so that was a great job, just basically wandering around the Smokies, usually by myself, hiking around. Um, looking for the eggs. Looking for nests, yep. How would you find them? You just get, they like to nest on the ground in cut banks a lot, so you just, Hiking trails, you just watch for birds flushing. You just are looking to see the little nest tucked in there. Yeah, you know that Tom Petty song where he says, "I can track a stink, a, I can track a single bee to its hive." <laughs> uh-uh. That's how people like hunt beehives in oh, the old yeah, days. Yeah. You just sit out in the woods <laughs> and watch a honeybee fly by, watch it go as far as you could see it, uh-huh. stand there, wait for a honeybee to fly by, watch until it disappears out of your line of sight, stand there. And over time, I got a friend who used to do it. Sometimes it'd take him a couple days of just whenever he would have time. And he'd just go to his last position and wait for one to go by. Mm-hmm. And eventually you'd locate the yeah. honeybee hole. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of same deal, but we'd wait for them to flush. You'd sometimes just walk. I don't know, in fa- I don't know that Tom Petty stick. can, in fact, track a single bee to its <laughs> hive, but he made that claim. Yeah. So How many would you find? Was it a good day a bird? Oh, no, more than that. Oh, you'd yeah. find more than that? Yeah. You'd be finding, there's tons of juncos there. You'd find, I don't know, I don't remember, probably four or five might be a good day nests. of nests. Yeah. Just working by yourself. Yeah. So, how, like, when you do these jobs, like, how, like we're going to get to, we're going to talk about a bunch of them, but how many jobs like this have you had coming into work on a research project that involved you running around out in the woods? That's what they've all been. I don't know how many jobs I've done. A dozen? Yeah, uh, maybe almost. Yeah. How are they described? Like, like how do you know posting? about um, There's a big, the Texas A&M has a, a wildlife program, and they have a, just an online job board that's kind of the go-to for a lot of people. And you just start 
cruising the job board and you find a job, then you're like, that's in a cool place and I'd be doing something cool. I'm interested in that and you apply and... And the more you do, then the better your resume is. Right, yeah. And so I was... But is the goal to wind up like, do you have a goal you'll... Do you want to just keep doing this or do you have a goal you'll wind up like at a fixed position? Yeah, see, that's something I agonize over because I love being in the field. I love doing what I do and I, I would, I'm dreading the day when that my typical day involves a lot more office work, which it will when I someday get a permanent job, which is I would only do because, you know, you're going to make more money and it's just more stable. And Yeah. Um, There's certain fields, I think, that do that. Yeah. And the higher up you go in the field, the less you're in the field. In the field. And I got friends, like, in the military, too, man. Like, they train up to learn how to do all this, like, badass stuff. And, like, you do well at it. And eventually what that means is you stop doing it. Right. Because pretty soon you have a desk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I cling to the hope that your job is somewhat what you make of it. And so... um if I can get a job where I'm doing some office stuff and maybe, you know, getting to um, think of research projects and actually be managing research projects but balance out with some field work, that'd be good. That'd be ideal. Yeah. Um, doing carnivore stuff, that'd be good. But I'm ha- I've been having a lot of fun doing this. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to, um, for a lot of this time before I kind of settled down, in eastern Washington to be able to just kind of travel all over, which really opens up the number of jobs you can apply for, obviously, yeah. if you're free to just go and live wherever for a season. How many years ago was it that you did, like, the Junko thing and the Hawaii thing? Let's see. I started school in 2002. Hawaii was, I guess, 2004. Yeah. Yeah. And then what did you go on to do after? Because you still haven't done a carnivore job, if we're yeah. tracking your... <laughs> My career. Yeah. So the so, junk, like hunting bird eggs. Hunting bird eggs. And I, um, I knew I wanted to do carnivore. I knew I wanted to do wildlife stuff from when I was really little. And then I started getting really interested in carnivores and knew I wanted to do that. But I couldn't, I don't know, it didn't, I was applying for carnivore jobs, but I think people were hesitant to hire a 20-something-year-old girl who's going to go and trap bears. I mean, I, yeah. I think I needed to prove myself a little bit. So, um, Do you feel like there was, a, you feel like there was an honest bias there? Yes. I, I can no, comfortably I can see it, man. say I that. See it. It's definitely, especially in the carnival world, it is, it's definitely a boys' club. And that's um, something I'm conscious of, but it's also, I mean, it's not like it's been a problem or something in the field where I'm, I feel like people are respectful of my abilities and stuff so looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift especially if you got mom aunt grandma whoever and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to okay it's easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving an aura as a gift you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. 
Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Have you overcome it now? Like, does your resume override? Like, does your or, or there's still some people like I don't care what I see on this resume, it's a girl. I don't know if people would not hire me because of that. Um, everybody I've worked with has been great, but there have been people where it takes a little longer to gain their respect, and I'm I have the feeling. I mean, it happens enough, and I see them interacting with other men on the crew or whatever that. It, I sense that it is maybe just even a subconscious bias against what they think I could do in the field. I had someone in archaeology one time refer to the bison boys. And I said, what are the bison boys? And she was saying, well, in this field, it helps if you're working on bison and you're a boy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's talking about like... uh, you know, in that, in that, like, in New World archaeology on the great, you know, on the yeah. Great Plains. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the bison boys, the bear boys. Yeah, and I think it's it's common with those field jobs that are especially, I don't know, more traditionally thought of as, I don't know if macho is the right word, yeah. but, you know, it involves 
trucks and knowing how to get yourself unstuck when you truck stuff. It involves snowmobiles and four-wheelers and big animals that you're moving around and traps. And I don't, I mean, I don't blame people because there aren't examples out there of women doing this a whole lot. And so when people, I think, just look at me, the first thing they think is probably not, I don't know, burly trapper biologist girl, you know? So... I don't know, but I can usually get people past that, and it works out. So, yeah. So bird collecting, bird egg gathering. Yeah. So bird. You never ate one of those eggs, right? No, I didn't. I was no, watching thing the other day. I was watching thing the other day with my kids, man. It was uh, they like to watch stuff about the Arctic, and we were watching these videos of these boys who just with like old shitty three eighths three eighths inch line rappel down cliff faces to gather. Eggs, mm-hmm. yeah. They rig up. They got this old. Looks like crab pot rope, and they rig <laughs> up a harness and shit. And they take the oldest, frailest, older guy because he's real oh, light, man. and lower him down over that edge. And that some bitches gathering those eggs up, and they're saying, and this the narrator is talking about how it's a common way to die. This is in yeah. Siberia. I bet. Have you seen that footage of uh, collecting um, nests for egg nest soup? And they're going down yeah. these caves. They build with those like, rickety. They, ooh, they build those yeah. scaffold systems. Yeah, I've tried to do that with. That's a swallow. Yeah, they, they use or a, a swift. One of, yeah. yeah, yeah. What is that family? Like swallows and swifts. But they have a saliva. Yeah. And they take stuff in their mouth and they coat it with the saliva and the saliva is sticky, and they build their nests and then. Um, you boil it down and you can extract that sticky saliva and they use it to thicken soups. Mm-hmm. And I've taken, you know, those kind of swallows that like build them under bridges, mm-hmm. the mud, the mud. Yeah, like a barn swallow or something. Yeah, I've taken shitloads of those nests and boiled them all down, and then and then skimmed off the, you know, let the mud settle, and I and then cooked it down. I've never found that shit in there. Whatever it is, like I've never isolated what it is, yeah. the, the the sticky stuff, because yeah. I wanted to make some of that soup. Right. And I figured that. They don't reuse those, you know, those dome nests. I figured you could probably break those up without breaking any laws. And I'd get them under urban bridges. Yeah, yeah. But I could never get whatever they're after. I don't know if it's like whatever they use to make that mud sticky, I don't know how they extract it when they cook it. Huh. Well, that mud, maybe the mud they use is already sticky and they don't need any of their yeah, own special saliva. I didn't do a whole hell of a lot of research. I just, <laughs> I just jumped right into it and, and bobbed Thought out. That might be delicious. <laughs> you, real quick. Um, before we get off the birds, you called it mist netting? Yeah, yeah what's that mean? So that's how you catch birds, songbirds, to put little bands on their legs. So you set up these nets that are just really fine. You can hardly see them. Mist or mist? Mist. Mm. Oh, I thought you said mist M-I-S-T. Net. Yeah. As in I thought you meant like missing them. I was like, that doesn't seem like an no, effective way. I'd be, yeah. hit, I'd be hitting at them. <laughs> <laughs> no, mist nets. So you yeah. set those up in the morning. And, and they, don't, they, don't, they don't break their bones and shit. Nope, they fly into them and they get tangled. And so then you go out there and untangle them and then you can you know, yeah. draw blood and measure things. And you got to have some mortality, right? There is some mortality, yeah. But it, I don't think it's real great. Especially, I think the, the most dangerous part is getting them out of the net. It's kind of a trick to learn how to do that really delicately. But I got a buddy, uh, I don't want to say his name. He works with ducks mm-hmm. and his phd advisor said if you're not killing some ducks you're not working hard 
<laughs> Meaning, like, gets you know, he wanted them, he wanted them to get some data. Yeah. And like, if everything, if you're making all your decisions around no mortality, you know, his feeling yeah. was. Yeah, and that's a balance. And you're working with mallards and things. I mean, you're working. You're not. You're not. It's like you're trying to like catch the last ivory-billed woodpecker. You know? Right. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah. So after birds, then I um I got into carnivores. Finally, I volunteered. So I spent volunteered. Yeah, I spent no pay. Right, I spent a summer just um, trapping bears around where I lived, helping out a trapping effort there, and then where was cleaning that? houses. That was in Humboldt, down in. So North you were Cal- trapping bears and cleaning houses in California. Yeah, yeah cleaning houses and um, taking care of somebody's homestead, doing their garden and stuff like that. So I'd clean some days, and then I go trap bears other days. And how were they? What was what was going on with the bears? How were they catching them? Foot snares. No, so there we were using just culvert traps. So it's a bit, it's a piece of culvert usually blocked off on one end. And at that end, for that job, we were using um, a sock, stuff it full of dog food, dip it in old, nasty fryer grease, um, and then hang some fish carcasses. So you hang that in the back. What of the, kind of fish? Uh, I think they were like just salmon carcasses. Um, Stinky stuff, basically. Yeah. Hang that in the back of the trap on a chain that's connected to the, like a guillotine door. Yep. They go in, pull on it, door closes. You go up to the trap, and there's little hatches on the sides that you can open up to stick a jab stick. Um, so a, lar- a long pole with the hypodermic needle on the end. And instead of the plunger, you've got the pole going into the um, casing of the needle or the um, whatever that's called, like the tube that holds the, the tube that holds the drug. Oh, yeah. so the the impact of you driving the thing yeah. injects yeah, the exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then you um somebody kind of distracts the bear. You're over by the hole and you jab it in the butt. Go to sleep. You open the door and pull it out. And and what are they trying to do? What's what the bear's they- attitude when you roll up? Usually, it depends. Um, it depends on their personality. Yeah. And it depends on how careful you are about, you know, moving slowly and being quiet. I like to, across species, try and keep them as calm as you can. They just react better to the drug and you just, I mean, it's a stressful, awful experience for them, I think. Yeah. Um, even when they're under with a lot of the drugs, it's like I've had it described as a really bad trip basically, depending on the drug. So if you're making a lot of noise and jiggling them around and stuff, I don't know. It just sounds awful. So, um, And there's complications that can happen if they start getting stressed out while they're under. So anyway, sometimes they're, you know, popping their lips and banging around in the trap, but sometimes they're calm. I think a lot of that is just individual personality. But They got to get trap shy from those culvert traps. That's funny. That's also across species. Also, that can be kind of uh, individual too. Like, how many times are they going to fall for that? Sometimes they. I've had animals get very trap happy, where they're like, mm, "It's not that bad. I get to go in the trap. I get a meal, and then <laughs> really, it's like easy to catch." Oh yeah. Because when I used to trap fox, you know, if you pinch the toe on a fox and then get them, they got canines, smart about that shit. Yeah, man. canines are a little different, and these are. Um, I mean, traps with bait, you know, that's where you'd have it happen more. So we, for example, we had a lynx 
that was always getting in our traps. We'd already put a collar on him. He'd always get in our traps, and he'd figured out that he could just chew a hole through the trap, get out, go down the trap line. What kind of trap? One. So for links on... Oh, let's back, I won't go back up from it. Okay. Why were you guys catching the bears? What were you trying to figure out? The bears, this was on timber company land, and they were having a lot of uh, problems with... Bears girdling the trees because they eat the. I've heard Caribbean. of that. Yeah, and so it kills the trees. People here struggle with that. Like on the Olympic Peninsula, mm-hmm. yeah, people yeah. talk about do, want, doing bear control because of how much they girdle and kill trees. Yeah. So they were trying to figure out where they were going. Uh, we should explain girdling. Oh, like, uh, you know, in the old days, you went out to clear land. Like when you hear about, you know, pioneer type settlers, when they would clear land, they would generally go in to get your first crop and they just go and girdle the trees. So you cut through the bark and through the cambium layer all the way around the tree. Um, think about like a girdle on someone's leg, right? You're just like cutting a ring around the tree and then kill the tree. Yeah. And then you could, so you would, you didn't need to necessarily to start to establish farmland or whatever. You didn't need to necessarily go in and log the thing off. You could just girdle everything first. That lets sunlight through. You can start growing crops and at your leisure, you can go in and cut the tree down. So people would talk about girdling a tree to kill it, just doing that to it. And bears are just doing that because they're just eating. eating. Yeah, they're eating the cambium layer, which is right under the bark. And so they're eating that, so they're stripping the bark up, um, and they'll go all the way around the tree or probably just strip it far enough up that it, it can kill and damage the tree. On conifers. Yeah, yeah, on conifers. So they were... Um, they what were, time of year are they hitting the trees? Oh, I don't know. But there, I think, if I remember right, I actually did my like senior thesis uh, using some of this information that we learned. But they like to hit the young, fast-growing trees. I think because there's more cambium. Yeah. Um, and so, in a you know, on logging land, that's a problem for them. But they were one of the things they were hoping they might discover from the collars that we were putting on them um, was were they migrating in the fall to places for um, acorns where they could maybe direct hunters. So oh. hopefully uh, the goal was to maybe figure out how to target the, the bears that were impacting there. So they were like trying to do scouting for people. Basically, yeah. That's, that's, that's the kind of research we like. Dirty. <laughs> <laughs> that's dirty. Well, it, yeah, and I don't know. I actually don't know what became of that. So they data. wanted to be like, where are these sons of bitches in the fall during hunting season? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Damn. There's also a, a master. Dirty. That is dirty pool right there, man. <laughs> There's I'd also- like to get my hands on some of that data. <laughs> <laughs> there were also, um, there was a master's student on that project. I'm not sure what she was using the, the data for. And then I did like a, a, habit, a little habitat analysis with that data that we got but so then we'd go and um after we trapped we went out and we'd do telemetry to figure out where they were hanging out did you ever mess up and get scratched up by a bear when you're working a bear no i haven't they had him come up come back to or something no that generally happens pretty slowly so they start lifting their head a little and you can just you know try and calm them down they have a um you put a blindfold on them to help keep them calm you heard about that story in montana right some guys are working up a grizzly and they, they, where they were working it up, they were relocating it mm-hmm. or just working it up. But either way, they put some signage out right. while they were working. Got all done. The bear was still comatose or what do you right. call it? Sedated? Yeah. The bear was still sedated. Yeah. 
they took down their signage. Uh, some fellow who lives in the area had seen him in there and wondered what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Goes in there, bear wakes up, kills that dude. Yeah, super unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, after, on that project, after we worked up the bear, we'd put it back in the trap and let it recover fully. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and then we, um, we'd actually tie a rope. To so the- you don't put him out when he's vulnerable. Right, and we didn't want them, like, I mean, they're, they're drunk-seeming when they start to stumble off. So we didn't want them walking down a logging road and, you know. That seems like good policy, man. Let yeah. them get its wits about it. Oh, definitely, because they could be killed by another bear or whatever, so. Yeah. Um, so we'd let them recover in the trap and then tie a rope to the door, tie that to the truck and open the the door that way and let them run off. And when they come out, are they usually just looking to get out of town? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. They want to get away from. Yeah. Yeah. Probably probably get a little bit, um, I imagine like the vast majority of grizzlies are probably the same way, but I think they'd be more inclined to maybe come out and be like looking to assign blame. Yeah, be a little pissed. Yeah, yeah. like be like, first I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to make this thing not want to mess with me anymore. And like then Miller's get, mule deer buck yeah, yeah. be saved. <laughs> yeah, we had, a friend, we had a friend who saved a mule deer buck who'd got all hung up in some ropes on a fence, and once he got it cut free, it attacked him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have not had that happen yet. <clears throat> so, all right. What, what's up with the house cleaning? Oh. Are you working for a service or just running ads? Uh, at that time at Humboldt, you could put your name on this just kind of like pick up odd job sort of thing. Yeah. And so I put myself on that list for house cleaning and like yard work. and Would you snoop around the people's houses? Oh, man. You- See some yeah. weird stuff? Yeah. You start, you know their secrets. I imagine, man. Yeah. If you probably don't really hide their secrets as well as they think they no, do, right? They it's not like you get to do any real snooping. Right. And I'm an anal cleaner, so I'm like deep cleaning, you know, I'm dusting inside the drawers and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Actually, I think I'm a good cleaner for the same reason that uh, I do pretty well in biology. It's attention to detail. So really? there's some overlap there. Yeah. So then, so uh, are you now, like professionally as a field biologist, are you now, you just can work or do you still have to do side jobs in the off season? Why um, is there an off season? You, call, you guys talk about a busy season. Why is there a busy season? Well, there's, I mean, in the summer, there's usually a lot of jobs because that's when people can get out there easily. They're, it's easier to collect data in the summer. Yeah. And then, but there's always jobs that are going on in the winter too, just usually not as many. A lot of times that's when projects take time to, you know, do their analysis or whatever. So the field portion is often in the summer. But then there's jobs that are specific to the winter, like snow tracking and trapping some species is easier in the winter. So do you still have to do uh, odd jobs to fill in? I haven't done odd jobs in a while. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that being when I was was coming up as a writer, um, that being a big moment when I just could do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Because I would do... Like I trimmed trees for, you know, did arborist work. Uh-huh. And when I finally got where I didn't need to do arborist work, not that I didn't like doing arborist work. Right, but. Yeah, it was yeah. like a mile, it was a milestone. Yeah, exactly. It was a milestone. Yeah. You know what I mean? To be like, yeah. just like now, it was, it was like a leap, right? But it was like, now I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do this thing. Yeah. And not have to worry about the other thing. Yeah. Feels good. It does. But it's still got to be like, it's got to be hard to make a living, right? When you jump from job to job to job. Mm-hmm. And they're not paying you know, there's not a lot all of entry, money It's there. all like entry level. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's probably why people get out of it. As much fun as you're having, eventually you're like, I just can't, like, yeah. Yeah. dread when I get bills and stuff. Well, and then you have that conundrum of, like, like you're saying, like, you make the money and all of a sudden you're not in the field anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that, that you have people, when you're younger, you have a tolerance for uncertainty. That, yeah. That fades. I if if I'm any if I'm any example, like I used to be very comfortable with uncertainty. It didn't yeah. bother me at all. Oh yeah. It bothered me a little bit, but I mean like I kinda like half lived in my one brother's basement, half lived in my other brother's spare bedroom. Yeah. Right? And it just it was just like, oh okay, well, this is how it is. Yeah. And I um I didn't have a whole lot. I mean it's not like I had a bunch of bills. I just it felt good to know that I could fit everything in my car and Go and, and work wherever. Yeah, I went for years with nothing but a cell phone bill. Yeah. Was the only thing my name was on. Yeah, I didn't even have that for a long time. <laughs> um, and then I also, yeah, I did, I mean, I'd do some odd jobs if I couldn't find a winter job or whatever. I did baking a lot. Baking? Yeah, I had a bakery I could always go back to for a Just while. come crawling back. Yep. Yeah. Make some cinnamon rolls. Yeah, but it may, you know, really in the end, it makes you just such a whole person. You know, I mean, think about if you hadn't done all these odd jobs, you know, oh, yeah. how different of a person you'd be now. But like yeah. these skills in baking and like, I'm making sure your, your, your house is probably a very clean, organized house. Yeah. Like, oh, you know. it's totally. And it, but the other thing about it, and it, I get into this all the time with people who, I guess like now that I'm my age or whatever, I've come to the weird point in life where I find myself giving out <laughs> advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I like give advice now, you know what I mean? And I have like four pieces of advice I give to people. And one of them is like develop your humility, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because a lot of people don't have it. And I feel like you know, I could say a really old man type thing now and start talking about kids these days, but I'll spare you that. But I find that the, the people I admire and the people who do something new and find success in something new, we're not where they have like family lineage propelling them along, you know, mm-hmm. but like yeah. you're like, yeah. you know, our, you know, like my, my, like my parents didn't go to college, you know, um, so when we went into professional lives, we were sort of going in a new direction. I think that to go and do that, you got to have, you got to like be able to, to just like do sucky jobs well. Yeah. Because that's the quickest way out. The quickest way out of a sucky job is to kick ass at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't kick ass at it, you'll always have sucky jobs. Because mm-hmm. people are like, be like, that dude couldn't even do the sucky job. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm not going to give him the, the important one. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. But like humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have scrubbed a lot of toilets, and that that's a quick way to humility. Yeah, I remember when I was in graduate school, I had a job cleaning the bathrooms in the L.A. building, the liberal arts building. And like I was in a very prestigious graduate program that was very difficult to get in. And I would, and like my classmates would be coming out of writing workshops and going to take a leak mm-hmm. while I'm in there scrubbing the toilets, yeah. right? Yep. And that shit hurts, man. It hurts, <laughs> but it's like it does something to your head. And yeah. It makes you like different, you know? It gives you something. Uh, well, it gives you just on top about like a level of humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sti- you know, the familiar sting, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it gives you gur and grit. Yeah. I remember sitting there with Giannis one day in Bozeman, and um, we were scrubbing toilets. <laughs> no, we were actually pulling out of a coffee shop, and we see a guy like a drift boat go by on a trailer, 
like very obviously, you know, like a young guy driving a boat mm-hmm. on a morning, and like clearly that dude is a guide. And Yana said, "Oh, you know, that brings back memories." And I thought he was gonna get all nostalgic. It was like floating that same fucking stretch of river every day. <laughs> Both of boys have it better than I do. So I later found out after we talked with that photographer that was with us on that trip, he guided, you know, and he said something like within an hour's drive, they have like 200 miles of floatable river where we had, I don't know, maybe a quarter of that, you know, gotcha. maybe more like 20 So he 30. might not be floating at yeah, same Yeah, so he, he may not have, didn't have the same, you know, feelings <laughs> that I did about it, but yeah. All right, so after Bears. So after that job... Um, and that was volunteering. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean... You got to have balls to put up a job listing that you're not going to pay. That's a lot of wildlife tech work, especially fun carnivore jobs that are super competitive. So they're like, people are going to want to do this. People are going to want to do this. People need to get their toe in the door. They need to get experience. And our project has no money. Let's get volunteers. Well, it's got some cash. We could probably get WPA volunteers. Oh, I know we could. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's like, then you can't even yell at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure you got yelled at as a volunteer, right? <laughs> they, you know what? Everybody was so appreciative. Yeah, oh, they were? Good. I, oh, they, they, treat, yeah. they treat you good? Oh, yeah. I mean, so my next job was um, right after I graduated and I spent the summer in Alberta in the mountains there on a cougar kill site analysis. There you go. That's good stuff. Was that paid? Uh, it was very little. It was stipend. See, that's the other thing is a lot of these places you get a, you get a stipend. So you're basically, you're not spending money because you're in the middle of nowhere. They, they give you housing and stipend. And you're camping out. Uh, no. Well, we had like four service housing. Okay. Yeah. So bunkhouse. There were. And what's kill site analysis? So, this project, he um, he was looking at prey composition. So what the cougars there were eating. Okay. And kill rates. So how often they were killing. Um, so you got collars on cougars. Collars on the cougars, and these were GPS collars. So these collars would take a location and store it in the. Collar. Did he already have the collars when you joined up? That was a wintertime thing. They'd use hounds in the winter to collar them. Yeah. So tra- run the cougar down the hound, mm-hmm. dart it. Dart it out of the tree. Yeah, that's the thing I wanted to How, When you dart, my boy asked this question last night after he was talking to you. When you dart the cougar up in the tree, how do you keep it from getting injured on the fall? I. This is how he did it and described it to me is that he would go up there before it was so out that it just fell and help it down. Help it down, yeah. Gotcha. Because it seems like they'd be in some positions where you couldn't dart them. Boy, that's got to be intimate with a big cat, just not quite out and just, yeah. oh, let me help you out of the street. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kitty. Yeah, you're kind of <laughs> stuck. You don't have a lot of uh, room to maneuver. Yeah. I'll tell you a horrible story. I was working on a magazine article in Nevada one time. And I got to hanging out with this dude who um, had been a mule deer and lion guide. So he was, a hunt, he was an outfitter. He had long, it had long since, since he got out of the business. He, we get to looking through a photo album, and he's got pictures of him up in a tree with lions with a jab stick. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the same setup you're talking about. He explains to me that when he was a lion guide, he would find that the clients only had so much appetite for running lions because it's hard work. Mm-hmm. He would keep a couple. He would go out in the off season, trank 
lions. This you're gonna think I'm bullshitting. He took me and showed me the cages on his property. Mm-hmm. He would trank lions. This is highly illegal. He would trank lions, keep them in cages, feed them deer meat. When he had a client that couldn't hack it, he'd let one of those out and then they'd run that one. That's cheating. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about dirty pool? No, it's yeah. awful. You want to punch the guy in the nose, right? But I mean, he's talking about like something from way back. And in his mind, you know, clients never knew. Yeah. I mean, he should, and the weird thing is, yeah, he's got a photo album with like big blown up photos. Just, he was like, he wasn't, you know, hiding, and he was hiding it from them. Mm-hmm. But he's like, oh yeah, here's me. And <laughs> here's where I used to put them. I'm not shitting you. <laughs> Just, he was an old fella. I would, I'd be surprised if he's still alive right now. But, uh, you know, he's talking about whatever. I don't know if this is something he's doing in the 50s or 60s. Yeah. But, you know, if there's a moral to that story, it's watch out for, do your research on your guide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd hope that that stuff is uh, harder to get away with these yeah, days. But. you'd like to think. Anyhow, so this fella has some collars on some lines. Yeah, so, um, so we would, so these GPS collars, they're taking locations. Um, I think his were set to every two hours. So you're getting pretty detailed uh, location data from these animals. Okay. It's stored on the collar. The col- collar also has a traditional radio transmitter, so it's making the beep if you've got your little antenna. In case the GPS yeah. fails or something? Um, just so you can locate them because oh, with real these time. collars, yeah, you have to find the cat again, get close enough that with a special antenna, you can suck the data off the cat's collar oh, and how download close? it. Depending on the Topography and everything, I don't know, 80 meters maybe? Depending close. On the, close. Sometimes further if it was a good strong collar. It, it, so you've got to find the lion all bedded up somewhere. Yeah, hopefully they're not moving or you're running <laughs> to catch up with them. No shit, so you track in on the lion Yeah, to I download never, I its waypoints. I never saw one doing that. I heard one, but I never saw one doing that uh, just because it's thick and they're good at hiding. And, and they'd be laid up in the rocks usually or down in the in timber? In the forest, yeah. Really? It was a lot of, well... There were some, there was, we had one uh, mountain cat. She was way up high. What do you mean mountain cat? She was way. A lion in the mountains. Yeah, lion in the mountains. So she lived, her territory was um, way up in the Rockies. And she was, you know, eating mountain goats and bighorn sheep and stuff. Um, so she. Wow. She was an alpine of, cat. Yeah. So she was in a lot of open, you know, cliffy country. But then we had cats that were just down in the, in the more boreal forest so it was really thick. And then there was one kind of town cat that lived sort of near to um, Rocky Mountain House, a town that was nearby. And so that cat was, you know, in farmland, but also timber. And, stuff. and where would it bed up at? Or where would you find it? Just in timber stands all over. I mean, they're, you But know. mostly in timber stands. Yeah. I mean, they, I don't, I don't know that they'd be bedding down in a grassy area. I don't know. We weren't, I mean, we weren't. We were going to kill sites, so we just, it would be every But you wouldn't be able to two. find the kill site without downloading where it had been. Right, but you'd do that every month or two, sort of opportunistically as you heard them. You'd always be Oh, listening. I got you, I got yeah, you. Yeah, so you'd get a whole pile of data all at once. And then, so, so you'd go find it, download the stuff, but you didn't have to do that regularly. No. Once, and then you'd have all those GPS waypoints. Right. And you'd analyze those to make sense of where it might have killed something. Yeah, so he'd And how would you know by looking at the waypoints? Just it lingered in an area? Yeah, so he had developed an algorithm that would go through the points and um, 
pull out places where the cat had spent enough hours within a small enough radius. Mm-hmm. So it was like a 200 meter, the cat had stayed within a, um, you know, two day period, had been, had made locations within a 200 meter radius or something um, for enough hours. So they could, they could leave, but if they came back, you know, more than two or three times, it would make what, what they call a cluster, a little mm-hmm. cluster point. So it's basically saying this cat hung out here consistently for, you know, more than just a couple hours. So then our job was to um, go out to those spots, get there however we could. We did a lot of uh, four-wheeling, a lot of backpacking in, especially for that mountain cat. And then you just plug it into your GPS and navigate out there. And then you'd get to the area where the cat had been hanging out. And you'd just start searching and searching and searching to see if there was a kill there. Oftentimes it was just a bedding site and you could, you know, find a little bed under a tree or whatever, but um, a lot of times it was kill. And so then you'd, this is where I started getting really into tracking. I'd been interested in tracking before this and, you know, learned a lot in school and just on my own, but um, it's really cool to go to a spot where a predator has been recently and left a lot of sign and you're trying to figure out, you know, sometimes from just tiny bone fragments and hair, what it was they ate, who else was there scavenging, what yeah. went on there. So but that that method, you would miss all the small stuff the cat killed. Right. Yep. Yeah. So so you you're not gonna find like fox turtles. I mean, all the garbage they pick up and eat. You're only gonna find the stuff yeah. where he had a substantial amount of meat underground. Right. Cats. With cats, I feel like we were finding some. We were finding some smaller stuff. They'd often, when they have a kill, they eat and they stay there. Um, whereas with say wolves, they tend to eat for a little bit and then go bed down or just go on their way if they've eaten it all. So I don't know. It felt it was cat would hang out. Yeah, for some. I mean, mice and little stuff. You're right. You're not catching that stuff, but you're getting the the bigger prey items. Like, but would you ever go in and find like a bunch of blue grouse feathers? I can think of that happening one time, and that was all we found. But that you find blue grouse feathers all the time, you know. You. So, so it's you like, don't know if it's coincidence, or right? Not. Exactly. Yeah, I got you. Um, so, what was the main? What were the main uh, things you were you were locating? Elk, deer, what? Elk, deer during the during the spring it was a lot of you know calves, moose calves, elk okay. calves, moose songs. calves. Yeah. Yeah. So we'd find moose, um, porcupines, beavers. They loved beavers. They would linger on a beaver carcass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we found a lot of beavers. I guess, yeah, because you got a, a cat's 100 pounds and he kills a 40-pound beaver. That's a meal. Yeah, I mean, he's going to hang out. Yeah. Um, it's like he's going to drag it off. I mean, he's not going to drag it too far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then... And they would be hit... When, when they're hitting the beavers, you imagine they're probably catching them when they're up out of the water working on cutting willows and stuff. Probably. I also imagined, because there's... I remember in a lot of spots, it would be like a wet meadow with just a deep trench that the beavers have made, but it's, it's you know, not there. The channels. Yeah. Plucking them out of there. I mean, I don't know. I never saw that happen or anything, but it's easy to imagine a cat just waiting for one to swim by and just, yeah. you know. You know, I've, I've hand grabbed, you can hand grab beavers on dry land. Yeah, if you get so between if you land. get between them and the water, there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, they can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, we just we just hurt back when we were of the age that you would uh, harass animals that you found out in the woods. We would harass beavers if we caught them on dry land now and then. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they ate a lot of beavers. There was one that ate porcupines a lot. 
And then, now, I mean, uh, it's... What would you find on the... You'd find... Would, would that skin be pretty intact on a porcupine? Would they kind of pull that porcupine right out of the skin, or would they shred that skin and all You'd those You'd find quills? maybe a, a piece of it, but there'd be, you know, a pile of quills. Maybe, a, yeah, a piece of the back with quills on it, or... Did you ever get the sense that they ate it and then passed the quills, or would they get the meat out? No, I never got the sense that they ate the quills. Yeah. You know, you could go to a grizzly... Where a grizzly bear has something. They'll run the whole damn thing through their system, where... All the bone, all the hair. Sometimes yeah. you'll find all the bone, all the hair in dropping form. Have you found porcupine quills, though? Never. Yeah. Not that I can think of. That might not be good on your digestive system. I imagine it'd be system. awful. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it'd be awful. We found a, my buddy, we were hunting in southeast Montana, and he shot a mule deer. And uh, it was just nasty because she must have, the only thing I think is she ran over a porcupine in an accident. I mean, how does a deer get the, her entire bottom coated in yeah. quills? I just feel like she was going along and happened to get over one. Yeah. But man, she was full of infections. Oh, it was disgusting. It's bad, she was, yeah. like, messed up. Like, to the point where it could have, like, long-term fatal. Yeah, probably. You know, from all that. Just full of quills on her belly. Yeah. And around her mammaries. Oh, man. Yeah, real, all this green. We cleaned it up, and we cleaned it up and got most of the meat off it. But I remember thinking it was, like, a deer killed, like... Would have become a deer killed by a porcupine. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So the other fun thing about those kill sites is that on multiple occasions we would find where they had been eating their deer or moose or whatever and another animal would come along to scavenge and they just opportunistically swipe that animal and add it to the No pie. shit, really? Yeah. Like what? Uh, I found a bobcat once, a fisher... Um, I think somebody might have even found a lynx once. Oh, but but he had a kill and then was like sleeping or up in a tree or whatever. Around comes some other thing to get in there, kills it, and then eats it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're opportunistic. We would find double kills, two deer in one cache. No shit. Yeah. yeah. I got a buddy that was running lions and they had a lion get up in a tree on a rock pile. Mm-hmm. And it was dark by the time they got there, and they couldn't get up on the rock pile. Mm-hmm. And there were, they, and there was a dog up on that rock pile. They couldn't get back. Oh, so they left and came back at first light. Uh-huh. No lion, but an eaten dog. Yeah, the lion came down out of the tree, ate the dog, and took off. Yeah, yeah. From what I've learned about hunting with hounds, you don't want to get your hound any of them isolated because yeah. a pack they'll, you know, run away from, but they know they can take on a single. The single animal. It I, had to have been a satisfying meal um, to yeah. be down like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I got you alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Would they? Would you find the animals that the lions killed tucked up and, and buried? Yeah. Like, would they bury a beaver or would they just eat the beaver and not cash it? They cash it. it. They, they cash, cash it. the beaver. Yeah. They cash a fawn. So sometimes what, fighting fawns is really hard because a lot of times it's just some tufts of hair and maybe uh, one little hoof or one little bone. But they scratch the cover up on it. Yeah, they're real anal about that. So they'll scratch around it. And then with a deer or something, especially there, it was, um, you know, real mossy if we were in the forested areas. And so they just haul moss from all around and and make a huge pile. Oh, yeah. Now, were they pretty fastidious about eating the whole thing or they often leave a lot of meat? Or does a cat like like to eat his kill right down to the bone? That's something I'm really interested just in general with with predators because 
I think there's a lot more scavenging than than we think about going on. So for um, you mean like other stuff eating the yeah coming in and eating so after the fact right and with cats I think it probably happens less because they tend to stick close um, but I'm sure they you know could get chased off of a kill I I definitely went to some that were just like uh, there's a huge rotting maggot pile here it for whatever reason didn't get to finish it but typically we were finding. Um, you know, the room and contents, they don't like that. They take that out first, drag the... They eat the stomach. Or does the lion not like to eat the stomach? They don't like the room and contents. They'll eat organs and stuff. Yeah, but I mean, because you always see it looks like someone dumped out a bag of grass clippings out of a lawnmower. Yeah, Because yeah. they eat the actual stomach but leave that sack of grass laying there. Yeah, or I also... Sometimes you just find that because they've just kind of taken out the whole thing. Um, so they almost got them. Almost, yeah. 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 Um, but eat the soft tissue. Eat the soft tissue. Liver, heart. Yeah, yeah. That's really nutritious stuff that tends to go first with kills. In fact, with wolves, you can tell, you can kind of get a timeline from the scats. Um, so, like the early scats from the first feedings on a kill will be these like black, nasty, I call them organ scats because they've been eating just the organs and pure meat. And then as they eat those things, up and they start eating, cracking more bones and eating hair, more of the hair and hide and stuff. Yeah, and you get, get those, those more. Yeah. yeah, and you can also learn a little bit about who maybe left that scat because the um, breeding uh, male and female get first pick generally, and so they're eating the the organs. Oh, but that's who wolves. Who gets first pick? Oh, wolves. That, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I got you. So I'm jumping around. Sorry. No, no, that's all right. Yeah, my buddy uh, Remy just was showing me some photographs. He was out hunting elk and found where some lions, those two lions, had killed. Do you remember what they killed? They killed an elk or a deer? I don't remember what it was. He's got all these pictures of them up in a tree because the wolves rolled in, mm-hmm. and the lions just ran up on a couple of leaning, lean trees, you know? Mm-hmm. This they took a nap. Yeah. And they're like, eh, fuck it now. Yeah. They took a nap just waited for the wolves to leave because there's nothing they're going to do about it. You know, they yeah. just stayed up in the trees. Right, yeah. I actually went to a wolf kill site that had, it was hard to tell what had happened because it was an old kill site that the wolf I was following had returned to, but it looked to me like she'd, they'd killed a, a deer, I think is what it was. And then I also found uh, where they had been, where they killed a, a mountain lion, and she'd gone back and was re gnawing on those bones. The wolves killed the yeah. lion. So, I mean, I don't, you never know exactly what happened, but... But the lion's carcass was close to the deer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they might have rolled up, got a tussle over the deer, and killed the lion. Yeah. And then ate the lion. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to get trichinosis. <laughs> yeah. That's how that happens. Yeah. So, but anyway, just mainly the point there is that when you're looking at predation rates... And, you know, how often predators are killing prey. You got to kind of think about and remember that it's probably not just that that predator, that pack, that pack that's eating it. A lot of times there's bears coming in. There's, you know, all Providing food for yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. We got a friend, a uh, fellow we talked to that he was doing, they were doing mortality. They were investigating mortality of collared caribou. Mm-hmm. And they had a caribou wearing a collar, got a, you know, the death signal or, you know, the mortality signal. Mm -hmm. It'd been hit by a car, eaten by wolves, eaten by a bear. Yeah. 
So a lot of sharing going yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that makes kill site analysis fun is it's not always just a straightforward, oh, the cat was here, so it ate it all up. You know, yep. you don't know, is this a scavenge situation with, with cats? That's less common just because they like fresher meat. But um, yeah, yeah. Like what percent of a wolverine, like what percent of a wolverine's diet did he not kill himself? It's got to be enormous. Oh, yeah. That's, I think, one of their main things is scavenging. Often. Avalanche slides, yeah. other yeah. kills. Yeah. So now the last thing about the lion, the, that lion job, what were they trying to find out? What are they eating? What are they eating and what's the kill rate? Yeah. What's that mean? Like how, how many often, kills? Yeah. yeah. What'd you find? Or what'd they find? Or? They've, mm, I'm not going to be able to remember off the top of my head, but as far as prey composition, it's, you know, it's very, but it also, I mean, predator populations and eating habitat or eating habits in general are really kind of controlled from the bottom up so what's available you know um something that i've come to realize just from being out there and from you know reading the literature is that a lot of times it's the reverse of what people think it's more the the prey population controlling the predator population um which is kind of relieves some of the fears that that people have of you know, these predators are going to come in and, you know, decimate this deer population or whatever. Yeah, that's the thing I, that's the thing I struggle explaining to people oftentimes when, when they're, when they're, um, when people get a little bit too hysterical about the predator threat is, um, you know, predators have a really, it doesn't really make sense mathematically. Right. For a predator to annihilate. Right. It's resource because that spells real bad things for, yeah. <laughs> for the I mean, predators. They, they, they can really eat they themselves They can mop something of... up and then move on to something else, you know, for sure. Like we got a, our, our buddy in Kentucky was, he was saying that when coyotes came in, he felt that the first thing they did was they worked groundhogs. And he said that was like the one thing you saw that just vanished from the landscape was groundhogs. Hmm. And it was like he said they, he felt this is anecdotal personal observation, mm-hmm. but he felt that they went from having shitloads of groundhogs and then they had no groundhogs mm-hmm. and then they went on to other things and established a viable population. But he felt that that was a case where it was just, they were gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then did they, did you feel like they switched to something Oh yeah, else no, yeah. yeah. And then now they got, you know, shitloads of coyotes and they eat all kinds of stuff. But he right. felt that one thing that he saw just vanish was, it must've been just easy pickings and something they really dedicated a lot of time to. Mm-hmm. And and that was what they've done. Yeah. It's the other thing that I have learned is that trying to pinpoint uh, the relationship between prey and predator populations is really complicated. It's, um, it's tempting to say, you know, this population of deer is doing really badly because X predator is on the rise or, you know, because they gave out way too many tags or whatever. It's, it's easy to try and pin it on one thing. But in reality, there are usually a lot of factors going on and working together. And um, I think that climate is underappreciated for its influence on prey populations, you know, a bad winter or a drought or whatever. Yeah. And 
and predators are often um, over appreciated for their. No, I understand effects. what you're saying. It's 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 hard to find a situation where a. I mean, it happens. Um, especially in situations where pay populations are already not doing well. Um, but it's, it's not often that you see this population of prey is doing badly, and it's because of this predator population. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that it becomes most pronounced when you get to those vulnerable spots. Right. Like, for instance, the, carib- right. the caribou yeah. guy we talked with. Right, exactly. He's dealing with, with a dozen animals. Right, which in a population that kills one so is like going to have a death. One is a huge deal for us. Yeah. You know, like losing one to a predator is a huge deal. Losing one to anything, losing one to getting hit by a car. Right, yeah. Now, vehicle mortality on white-tailed deer isn't really making anybody worried. Mm-hmm. But when you got a dozen of something, it's a big deal. Or when yeah. you have a, a drainage that has a population of maybe six or seven breeding female moose, mm-hmm. yeah, predation becomes an issue because you got six or seven. Well, and everything becomes an issue. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, every, yeah everything So, you can't just point it at the predators. And it's habitat and, um, and climate are, they're usually big. Players. It's hard to isolate all those different factors exactly, for yeah. the research so that you can say if exactly. it's one thing or another. But that's what um, our buddy Bill Andre was talking about, the warden from Colorado. Have you heard about the research they're doing in the Piance Basin in Colorado with the, with the predator mule deer relationship? Mm hmm. They feel like they've got an isolated enough area in a herd that's not doing well compared to other herds around it, but it's isolated, and they know that they've got like, what do you say, the habitat they know can support the the fawn. Yeah, the, they have. They're having great fawn. Ninety-five percent of the females they test are pregnant. Yeah, the live fawns twins. with twins. The fawns when they test them, the live fawns when they test them are heavier. Than the last time they were tested in the 80s. Yeah. So they're well fed, but they have just zero recruitment. Mm. So they feel like maybe they're getting some very heavy predation right yeah. during that uh, like early stages of growth, like in June, July. Yeah. And so they're going to try predator removal at those key, you know, what they think is at the, time. But it, it, what the thing is saying too, what's peculiar about the approach they're taking is a lot of times people do sort of this like generalized predator control. Mm-hmm. But they're going to do a very targeted predator control at a very targeted time. So not like going out in January, February to catch cats mm-hmm. that may or may not be killing fawns in May and June, mm-hmm. but to kill cats in May and June. Right. To see if, you know, you never know if you're getting like the cat, but like to see if what kind of movement that has on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but man, yeah. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. 
Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Predator control, it's its like such a thorny subject. It is. And it's, um, I think it's slowly changing a little bit. I think our traditional predator management is, has been in the past that there's a problem, we kill the predators. Um, but I think that there are other ways and um, that that's slowly starting to be incorporated. Yeah, but I'm afraid they're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, I think the old days of, you know, taking a half-dead animal and injecting it with strychnine and then having that be your predator control program is, you know, those days are beyond us. But I think that also there are times like this thing we're talking about, this, this piece of work, that they're doing in Colorado or the thing they're doing with mountain, like the thing they're not doing active predator control at the mountain caribou, but were they? Mm-hmm. It's like in cases, I think it's very valuable, but everybody, you know, people want to be so binary. It's like we had the, the early 1900s model, which was use poison to eradicate all predators. Mm-hmm. And then now to have this like overcorrection 
mm-hmm. that we're leaning to now where we want to be like, oh, no, it's, you know, it's like this, this tool we dasn't use mm-hmm. because of the, you know, because of the public perception of it and the PR obstacles in the way. Mm-hmm. It's just like everything else. I think like predator control at times can be a valuable tool. Does that mean I think we should poison carcasses and kill everything that feeds on a, on a, on a, on a dead elk? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I think that we don't want to limit the tools we've got, but I, my, I don't know, my feeling and what I've learned from just being around predator management is that um, we off, often come at it from, look at it with a certain framework of what we've always done, which is there's a problem, we control predator populations, where, um, where I think we're missing in situations that there are other things that might actually be the problem, a more underlying problem, yeah. um, and that there might be other ways yeah. to solve it that are like less. that. It's not a panacea. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like people. Some people, some people, especially on our end of things, like a lot of big game hunters want to think that that's like the answer to all problems. Right. Yeah. I think where where it gets weird with predator controls when people act like it's a, um, you know. I think a lot of hunters especially act like it's like this panacea where they feel like it'd solve all problems. The yeah. predators are the root of all evil when it comes to diminished game populations. Yeah. I read this paper not long ago. It was more like an internal letter where a guy was there. There's a biologist and he was explaining people's perceptions of, of the impact of wolves on elk. And he was saying how we've always... You know, prior to the reestablishment of wolves, we'd always lost thirty calves per hundred to lions. Mm-hmm. And he said the wolves probably added about ten calves per hundred. But people were just used to thirty. Like people had just become used to the fact that you know about seventy percent of calves survived, mm-hmm. and they got used to like that was how we allocated tags. That's what people were used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And then you had an additive effect of wolves. Right. And it wound up, you know, it upset this sort of long-standing system. And it impacted the number of elk, impacted the number of tags. And people were like, oh, it's all wolves. It was like, no, in fact, it's mostly lions. Wolves are just a new additive to that. Yeah. You know, but it's like people uh, take a while to get used to it. But then I, then I run into people about wolves who almost want to make you believe that wolves eat grass by the way they point out that there's no see what i mean that they don't do anything i was like well they eat seven pounds of meat a day so it's coming from somewhere you know yeah i mean they they're out there just doing their thing but in both directions the um the impact that they have I think is overblown a lot. Yeah. They're not um they're not necessarily fixing everything and um they're also not ruining everything. Yeah. So I like I mean I enjoy them being out there. I like them being yeah. out there. It's like I, I think that I probably represent a pretty standard view of um I like having all the native species on the ground. I like having like, you know, an intact collection of large predators mm-hmm. and i also 
like it when those large predators are managed as a renewable resource where you have interest. So that's just my personal take on it. I'm like a middle of the roader. Yeah. I'm like, I, yeah, I, I would never suggest eradicating them, but I also don't like that the game we play where people have their like favorite animals and then they um, want to act like certain animals are off limits because they're like a calendar worthy species. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all, that's a tough thing to talk about too, because that hits on people's emotional attachment to different animals and just kind of their own belief system. You know, there's some animals that are just taboo for take, Yeah, you know, um, but I think we all we all have that that threshold somewhere, or you know, a lot of hunters. I think of I kind of think of a graph, and there's a lineup of animals on the x axis, and like so for me, zero is mosquitoes, and then you know at the other end of the x axis, there's something I would not want to kill, like my grandma or something. Yeah. And so, and then there's this old granny. Yeah. Two lines. And one is, um, your desire to eat it, hunt it, um, be a predator for some reason. And then there's another line, um, that's just kind of your empathy or whatever. And so you have this line that for me, I want to kill mosquitoes. So I don't have empathy and I have a high want and then where those lines intersect, where I've got um, the desire to kill something is higher than the empathy. My, my empathy, higher than um, my desire to just know they're there, that individual's there. Um, and then, but there's also the point where I like knowing they're there and my empathy is so great that I, I have no desire to kill them. So where does it fall for you? Um, I, I think empathy grows as you interact with animals a lot. So for me, I don't know about that. Well, okay. Well, okay. Okay. Here, go ahead. Go ahead. I think bears is where things start getting really gray for me. I, those lines start to get really close. Yeah. I would have a hard time hunting a bear. I wouldn't, I, I don't have a desire, my desire to to eat it doesn't outweigh my desire to just know they're there. I've also, I have interacted with so many bears. I've held their cubs and watched them in their dens and watched hours of, you know, trail cam footage of them. And so I just feel too connected. And so that empathy that line in and of itself up. doesn't explain it. Why not? Interaction, that- interaction doesn't explain it because think about how, like, Giannis, how much have you interacted with elk? Yeah, thousands of hours. Yeah. Held their babies. No. <laughs> okay, short of but observation, studying, right? Yeah. I think in, like- in my case, in my case, interaction leads in the other direction. There's some things where I feel like, uh, the, like recently we had a wolverine, right? Mm-hmm. get into a wolf carcass in an area where you're allowed one wolverine a year mm-hmm. hunting. It was the first wolverine I ever laid eyes on. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to kill the first wolverine I ever laid eyes on. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the thing that I was thinking about when people go to Africa where it's kind of like, oh, that's what that looks like? Bam! You know? yeah. It's like, I don't have any context with it. Right? I'm not going to shoot the first wolverine I see. 
Now, if I'd been out and I glassed up a dozen wolverines over the course of a couple of years, uh-huh. I'd start being like, yeah, like I now have sort of earned my place at the table. Ah, uh, yeah. That's just another measuring stick of like, I don't know. I just feel like everybody's got their own kind of complicated value and ethics around it. And that, that plays into it. But there's, I mean. Would you shoot a panda bear? No, I have no desire to do it. That's yeah, no, no, that's where I draw the line, man. Panda bear. It used to always happen to me guiding. It seemed like around animal number ten of the fall, where, like, because early on, it's just like every client, you're just like, I want to kill an elk with you. I want to kill an elk with you. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then when you've seen about ten of them hit the dirt, all of a sudden you just kind of like, oh. Killing another one, yeah. There, there's but some it's still sort fresh of, for the client, though. He yeah, has, he hasn't. No, seen he's 10. not. He's not feeling that, you know. <laughs> but I definitely felt like as a guide, I would just be like, oh well, you know. Yeah, if you don't want to run after that one, we don't have to, you know. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, so that empathy line is starting to inch above your desire to. Yeah, I have it with I have it with wolves as much as I support. Um, I, as much as I support the right of state fish and game agencies to manage wolves as they see fit. And as much as I support um, hunters who operating within the letter of the law, their like right to hunt as long as their state game agency has determined that the population can support harvest. Mm -hmm. And it's all done within accordance to preserving the long-term viability of the species and all that stuff. That's a long caveat, right? Um, And I've purchased wolf tags. But when I see a wolf, um, I just don't, right? Yeah. Just don't feel desire. Uh, one time we were out and I'd killed a doll ram and then my buddy got a bear. And that night we had a you know white wolf come rolling down the riverbank where we were. Mm-hmm. And at that time I just was like, ah, you know, we just got a sheep. We got a bear. Two days later, it's like, you know. That's a lot. Yeah. But there's always something. Another time I was just hiking up a river with my rifle, wolf standing there, could have, you know, shot the wolf, zero desire. It was standing, I mean, I could have thrown a rock at it. Yeah. No desire. But in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, at some point. But it's like when it happens, I don't. Yeah. The, 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 when I, like, you know, you show me something like a doll ram, the minute I see it, my desire to go after it goes through the roof. Yeah. But the minute I see that, you know, lay eyes on a wolf, the desire doesn't climb. Mm-hmm. Grizzly bears, it's like a very gradual down. Like a wolf, it's like the desire is pretty sharp down. Mm-hmm. Grizzly bears is a gradual down. Black bears is a flat line. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, there he is. I suppose we should go over there and get him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I think a lot. But elk, I'm like, let's go, let's go. Yeah. You know? There's a lot that goes into how quickly that empathy uh, threshold is reached. And I think that's, I don't know, it's a, it's not something that we should nef- necessarily like strive to, to push through that or, or to, you know, not think about it too hard because it's upsetting to think about, you know, killing this elk and, I think it's okay. You can be upset about it a little bit, but also want to kill it yeah. and go through with it. But And it's okay if you're like, I cannot just make that wolf into um, into something I don't 
have empathy for. You know, if if the if the reasons to kill it don't outweigh the kind of sad feeling it would give you to kill it, why why push through that? You know, and there's no, I know, and 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 I'm listen. I think that people, yeah, I think it's something that it's a valuable thing for people to discuss and talk about. I do think also it's important that people recognize that it's pretty arbitrary. Yeah. Okay. It's very personal and very arbitrary. And I only have problems with that when people want to start legislating based on their personal arbitrary per- perception of it. Because I'm like, okay, I talked about this the other day with someone. Like if you go and buy, like if you buy a box of chicken McNuggets, right? How many chickens are in that box? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way they produce that shit. It's not like one chicken. Right. It's a dozen damn chickens in there, all blended up in a blender together. So I'd be like, oh, just imagine cuddling all those 12 little chicks, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like you're not invited to think about it. Right. So I think that when some people do run the calculations in their head and they're like, and they arrive at this thing where like, I wouldn't want to hunt black bears. Therefore, I'm going to really push to make it that no one can hunt black bears. Yeah, because it's just upsetting for them to think about yeah, other people it's doing like, it. Either. It's upsetting for me to think about all those little baby chicks. Yeah. So, yeah. But, it, so, but some people feel like obligated to really pursue pushing their line. Yeah. And, and that's the only time it starts to be not offensive to me, but it just I, I start to get a little skittish. Yeah. When when that happens, I think it's always going on. You know, if you, if you watch the way initiatives work in, in the political cycle, it's always going on that people are like coming up with arbitrarily arriving at their favorites, and then and then trying to like legislate their favorites when it's it, when it is entirely arbitrary. Yeah, um, that's true. But I think that it's going to be a constant battle all the time between our sort of historic cultural attitude towards wildlife and um, our natural areas in general of this is here for us and we can just take. I think that's one extreme end. And then there's, you know, it can't be touched. And let's ignore the fact that, that we're predators and have a desire to engage with nature in that way. Um, so if those extremes keep fighting and we keep meeting in the middle, that's the, you still want to have both both ends, maybe or people yeah, closer no, to the mean, middle. Yeah, because I feel um, historically, the like when I look at just the his, historic wildlife, the enemy is uh, the the just take, right? Like what happened to what happened to American wildlife in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds? Yeah, was having absolutely no regard for the future. No comprehension of the finiteness of our resources. Mm-hmm. This, and further this than Abrahamic, that, you know, like Leopold calls it, like this Abrahamic concept of land, where it somehow everything was like given to you. Right, it's your God-given right. Yeah, to, like this, you yeah. have this, like you, like this divine right to just destroy, and a divine duty to civilize. Yeah, to tame and, and tame uh, that wilderness. So that's like the old enemy and that has been largely vanquished in this country i'm not saying globally but that attitude has been that defeated is still there yeah no it's it's root is still there but but we've arrived at a place where you've legally yeah squashed it yeah right the new enemy now 
like the new threat now, I feel, is the other side of it, which is the complete dissociation with wildlife and that it's something that we just have to look at out the window of a car and it has nothing to do with our lives anymore. Mm-hmm. That it's an art, it's a relic of the past and it's just meant for observation. Yeah, yeah. There's no entanglement. Yanni, what do you think about LA? You got a concluding thought? Just after my bathroom break, you're going to hit me with that? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking we need to have Carmen back again because we took a little break and I got to chatter up about her early hunt experiences and there's a lot to talk about there and we didn't even get to that. Yeah. we didn't. Uh, how many animals did we miss off? We're just getting started on my resume. Yeah, and I don't even like to know just like a real quick, like how even like a, how it's done. What? The tactic of, of trapping wolves. Yeah, when they when they put collars on wolves, they're catching them in foot traps. Mm-hmm. Yep. Padded, padded jaws. Padded jaws. Yep. Put inline springs in them. Um, they're just. I mean, they're they're no different. They've just got pads. So you. It's like a double coil spring with pads. Mm-hmm. And then you get one in a trap and you drug it and put a collar on and. Kind of the the standard. They just they just use urine to lure them. All kinds of stuff. Bait. All kinds. Uh, no, not bait. Um, Odors. Yep, scent lures. Mm-hmm. They are so smart, and they they um, they tune up really fast, and so scent control in the area of your trap is really important. In fact, so the the trapper that trapped for this project would have a, everybody else there just sit in the back of the truck. Yeah. Because, you know, you didn't want our footprint smell around. Um, and then just disguising these traps really well and, and using different scent lures. And it's not, it's, it's not easy because um, they are so smart and the slightest little thing wrong is going to oh, yeah. make them skittish. I've had, so I've done a lot of trail camera work over the last couple summers with wolves and even they are they get wary of those you know i have so many videos of them just slinking around my camera they somehow know that it's there i've they don't like it they don't like it and i don't know i've i've tried um putting like fur boughs in my hands and then grabbing the camera with that so i'm not even touching the camera they've so got you decent you know, the, the camera as much I as you can i try to yeah. I, and i have you know they've got the black light so they supposedly can't see it and but you get pictures where they're staring right at it they know so they're they're pretty savvy yeah there's a sheen to it or something the cut the something color. or maybe a tiny no- noise i don't know it's hard to figure Their out noses. like when i used to trap fox and coyote it would be that um yeah, all the precautions, like you die and wax your traps, and I'd store them in boxes full of hay. Only use rubber gloves. Clean your rubber gloves any to every time. Only use rubber boots. Clean them every time. Disinfect everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you know when you bed the trap and you cover it in you know half inch, three quarter inches of dirt. If that trap had any wobble in it, oh yeah, they just it's like but you're stepping on shit that wobbles all the time. They're walking through the woods. Yeah, but something's not right. That's what I'm saying, but how many times does he place his foot? He places his foot thousands of times every day. But like how often is something under just under the soil? It's just different enough. They're they're, they're nervous because they're they're nervous because they smell something. 
Yeah. yeah. So you you ask them to come in, and once you pinch one's toe, man, they get very, very difficult. You'd even then go, and, like, if you had, like, a dirt hole set or a scent post set, you know, and you got your trap, you know, nine inches back, three inches off center, and then you'd wind up bedding a couple of them two, three feet back because he's not expecting them to be there, you know? Mm-hmm. But they, it's just, like, they just... There's, uh, yeah. They're just being so frustrated. Yeah. You just, you, you just like really dread tough. the moment. Like when you came out and saw your trap excavated, like where he'd dig around the outside jaw mm-hmm. and expose the jaw, you're like, I will never catch this thing. Yeah. And he will come and do this every yeah. night. <laughs> that's, that's the, I think, the fun thing about research trapping is there's an added challenge of A, you're not always trapping in a place where that animal is plentiful. Um, so for example, I first trapped lynx in Maine where there were many more and it was, it was a lot easier. We caught a lot of animals. Um, although catching females, we had to get trickier with cause they just, I don't know. It seems like in general across species, a lot of times the females are harder to get and older animals. So if you care about getting a, a nice slice of the demographic, you know, young adult, male, female, that, that adds a challenge. And then, you trapping somewhere where there aren't many, so trapping links in Washington, uh, they're threatened here, and there's less than fifty probably, and so there's a there's it's a whole winter of trapping, and we caught four, and there's this one female with kittens that we just pulled out every stop for, and. Um, Got her in a trap once, but she got away before we got there. No, you're not trying to catch those in leg holds, right? No. They wouldn't hold up, probably. Uh, they can get frostbite. Yeah, so I was thinking they'd be yeah. too cold. Yeah. Yeah, so we just use. And they don't, it's just not, so, it just doesn't seem like a cat's going to do well in a foot trap. People use them in the summer. They do? Yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to get a permit for that in Washington for research. So you guys are using box traps? Box traps. Yeah, yeah. they're not like particularly trap shy, but they get trap shy about a box well, they trap. Can, it, that's, individual so um some of them would go into traps once they figured out that there was bait in there they'd go in them every night or so for a while and then they're like i said the females though super hard to catch and this one in particular i mean we had when we ended up when the time that we did catch her this is a story that still makes me sick to my stomach (laughs) because it was so frustrating we'd been targeting her the entire winter and we'd extended our season because we wanted to get her so bad. And on the last day, we were out closing our traps. And we pull up to this trap. It was a, we'd started setting double traps. So we'd have one box trap backed up to another one. We'd cover all sides of it with uh, boughs so that if a kitten or one of the lynx went in one trap, the only way for the kitten's mom or the, or to um, figure out what's going mom, on. Yeah. To get to closer to that kitten would to be going the other trap. So we had a double trap set and we had, we'd done away with our whole treadle season or our, our treadle, um, trigger system. Yep. So we had fishing line. We need to explain what a treadle you step on the stick and it triggers the trap. Yeah, you step on you step step on it's like a, a, a little lot of platform. Dead, a lot of deadfall traps are that way. Okay, because it, it's just a trigger system where when it enters, it puts its foot on a basically like a, like a like a stick like an inch or two off the ground, right? Yeah. So this was so basically our trap sets were this box trap. Uh, you cover the sides with 
with boughs so that it's it's a tunnel through. And you've got visuals out in front of it. You're trying to get the links in the area. And then you've got bait in the back of the trap. And your hope is that they will feel comfortable enough to walk into the trap to get to the bait. And they'll step on this little paddle that you've done your best to disguise with snow and whatever. And they step on that and that triggers the door. The door falls down. You remember like Ben Benyon's uh, hog traps? Yeah. Yeah. Where they bump the wire. Mm -hmm. Picture that you had a... Anything, even like a piece of plywood elevated mm-hmm. to where you put weight on that plywood. Pop yeah, it tips forward and the door goes down. So it's kind of it like a like a have a heart trap, but these were homemade and bigger. What, what kind of weight uh, does it take to trigger that trap? To- you tried to just have them on a hair. Trigger. It is a hair, but it was just weird enough that it was, and they'd get bunged up with ice and whatever. So they they weren't working well enough that we were catching cats and they were wary of them. So what we did was we took those out and we took um, fishing line and we strung it kind of towards the back in a uh, sort of a like a Z, Z shape. So it came from one side to the other and looped back and then went out the top of the trap. Then we had a, um, a mouse trap mounted on the top of the trap and um that would throw the trigger yeah that would throw the gate yeah so the the fishing line was um tied to the little fake cheese thing and then we had the door was on a on a little piece of rope and you'd loop that over the the um the little the bale thing yeah the bale so that when the cheese got pulled on even slightly we had birds tripping these things when it got uh, pulled on even slightly by an animal in the trap, the door would close. Yeah. So anyway, so we've gone through all this. It's our last day. We're closing traps, and we pull up to the trap, and the doors are closed because it's a double trap. We leap off our snowmobiles, and the trap is empty. And we could tell from the tracks what had happened was one, either the mom or the kitten had gone in the trap and the other had obviously been upset about this and was, was um, you know, trying to get at it. And we even sat on top of it and all this stuff. But before it got desperate enough to go into the other trap and we would maybe even have both of them, a little bit of snow buildup at the bottom of the door created a tiny gap in the, between the door and the top of the trap. And that length squeezed out of there. No shit. So we missed, we, we never caught that female. We came so close, but never caught her. So anyway, the point of all that is when you have to catch certain individuals, you don't just get to move on. It makes you get creative and get and Oh, imagine, get yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Even with beaver trapping, sometimes there's just that last female that you really want to get out of there because you want the whole family group or whatever, and you just... Even that can be super tricky. So you found that the females are harder to get than males, like as a generalization. Yeah, yeah. I think just they're less less risky, more wary. A lot. The I'd say in general, the easiest is young males. Yeah. Inexperienced young males. I'd buy that. Yeah. Because oftentimes they're finding themselves in strange areas too. Yeah, and they've just learned stuff. Where they and, spread out. Yeah. More aggressive. Yeah. 
All right, man. We're going to have to have you back on and talk more about all this. <laughs> now, can you do your concluding thought, Yanni? <laughs> Lots of similarities there between the animal kingdom and, and us. Yeah. <laughs> the young males get in trouble all the yeah. time. Yeah, Jared Diamond talks about, Jared, the, you know, the physiologist, and among many other things, Jared Diamond talks about why reckless behavior in males, like how that would become selected for in sexual selection. Like why would why would you know the propensity to do like ridiculous crazy shit that will get you hurt? Why is there an adapt, why is there an advantage there? And he thinks it's a, like getting really shit faced drunk. Okay, why is there why is that advan- Why is that selected for? And he he talks about I can't remember if he was given this idea of his own or or given a summation of someone else's theory, but it was that it's a demonstration of fitness. Because you're basically saying, like, I'm so fit. I'm so fit that I can afford to do these very risky behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that has, over time, had, like, a a sexual advantage in attracting females. That you're like, now there's a specimen. He can get (laughs) that drunk. (laughs) (laughs) And still be okay. (laughs) Because there is something about it, you know, why it wasn't just that sexual selection and adaptive advantages wouldn't just make you real timid. People don't, you know, they don't want that. They want that bull elk to just come screaming in, thrashing brush, man, you know. Yep. The guy hiding out in the black timber, he doesn't, he's not getting anywhere. Um, all right. Was that your concluding thought? No. Um I guess thanks for coming on, and I'm so stoked that we have <clears throat> people like Carmen out there doing the, the the good work and getting this research done. And, and now that you're a hunter, it's even better, you know. And I don't know. We were talking about it off while we weren't recording, but just getting somehow keeping science, um, you know, like in the forefront to keep you know people making decisions and, and not getting you know the politics involved too much and. Um. Yeah, just hope we have more people like Carmen out there doing wildlife research and helping us help the rest of us make this informed decisions. Yeah, just find out about stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep learning. I don't have any concluding thoughts. What are your concluding thoughts? You got any? Anything you wanted to? You want to try to get the job or anything? Or. <laughs> <laughs> Not selling, I mean, you're not selling anything? Are you selling anything? Spread, no. You're not like, you don't have like a t-shirt company or anything? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as scientists, I think it's important to try and reach a wider audience, you know? And that, that's you know, hard. we had a long discussion about that last, we had a researcher on who is a, um, does sociology research, and we had a long discussion about um what I see as my need for scientists to uh, as painful as it is for them to translate their work for a popular audience. Yeah. But a lot of them, it's just a very uncomfortable. Oh, it's super uncomfortable. Place to go in because you live in a world of caveats and reservations and not wanting to make generalizations and not wanting to oversimplify things. And you enter into a world where people are like, so what's it all mean? Yeah. And you're like, that's not my job. Yeah. 
I don't tell you. I'm not here to tell you what to think about it. Yeah, no. I'm here to tell I mean, you what's there. Yeah, I can and tell you what's going on, but I'm not going to translate it for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But scientists need to be able to do that effectively, you know, so that their work isn't just being circulated among other scientists. But that's, that's the other thing I talked about too. Is like someone's going to translate it. Why not be in the driver's yeah. seat? Yeah. Why and, let some? Why let some? You know penny any journalist read your paper and right. take a stab at it when you can a little bit try to guide it by getting out there with your messaging of course people can abuse it and you wind up having scientists who get accused of grandstanding where everything they do is meant to be outward facing mm-hmm. and they lose their credibility but i think that yeah to uh to enter that uncomfortable space of coming in and taking something that's like really complicated and you try not to make to, to read into it too much and you're trying not to be swayed by policy and personal opinion mm-hmm. and then explain to people like, here's what's going on out there. Um, it's tough to distill it down. Cause you can always imagine your colleagues listening and jumping on you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a skill. <laughs> I mean, it was taught in classes that I've taken. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah. They actually talk about it. Oh, definitely. I mean, sci- a lot of scientists know, okay, we've got this problem. We need to figure out how to, teach people what we have found in a way that's understandable and yet still accurate and true to what we've found, you know, because it's a balance between making it understandable and also not missing important points of your research or simplifying it too much or whatever. Uh, My old, one of my brothers, you know, he's a researcher and part of the, there's, it's kind of built into his, it's sort of built into his job description is some amount of public facing. Yeah. Some amount of public facing work. Yeah, it's, it's a skill. Into it now. It's a skill because you can have a great scientist who gives a talk and nobody can understand or follow it. And so that's that doesn't work either. You know, yeah. just as much as oversimplifying it or, you know, not explaining enough doesn't work. So, yeah, it's a skill. Yeah, it's a lot easier just to have every answer be, I don't know, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too complicated, I can't explain it. Yeah. All right, well, thanks again. We're gonna, we have to, yeah, you're going to have to come back on. Yeah, definitely. That'd be fun. We left a lot good. out there. All right, thank you. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.